So, uh, in our early years, we are vulnerable beings, and it's very important for us to establish a secure connection with the people that take care of us, uh, parents, siblings, and then eventually uh, peers in school and teachers. We learn over the course of our early years in life to uh, we observe which kind of behaviors are rewarded with secure positive connection and which kind of behaviors of ours, which emotions, which impulses lead to difficulties in our connection and our relationships. Really, it's our only job as children to learn how to connect securely with other human beings. That's what we are, we spend the first most emotionally impressive years of our lives doing, which is learning to connect human beings, being the social beings that we are. Uh, it's deeply embedded as basic drives that it's uh, how important it is for human beings in order to survive, how much we need to be able to make secure relationships with the people that are around us. We develop what are essentially coping strategies, uh, a set of behaviors that allow us to survive in our family systems. And these coping strategies, essentially a set of behaviors and impulses that we rely on to sustain being seen by the people around us in a secure way without being abandoned or rejected or judged or criticized. We rely on strategies such as we might become, if we realize in our family systems that certain needs won't be met, we become very self-reliant and we don't uh, share a lot of the negative emotions that we experience because we're so used to being by one parent or another or both, we're used to maybe not uh, being empathetically, compassionately heard when we are experiencing sadness or anger or fear. Others of us who grow up in families where one of the parents is completely uh, childlike become caretakers of our own parents, which means we give up getting our needs met and we instead take care of one or both of our parents so that we can maintain a relationship, but we don't, on the other hand, ever have to be vulnerable around them. Some of us will become grandiose and narcissistic as the only way we can maintain secure connection by constantly calling attention to our successes and our achievements. That's the only way we can get uh, recognition. I feel very comfortable in suspecting that that's the only way Trump got any attention from his father was by grandiose, ever-escalating overarching statements of his abilities and his achievements and continually shunting the attention away from any area where he wasn't doing so well. Introverts are essentially people that learn that they are safest in social situations by 
simply listening and not uh, risking to be vulnerable and spontaneous. And so on and so forth down the line, we develop strategies to help us sustain a sense of security in our relationship with our families. And many of these coping strategies are very useful. They can be very beneficial. We can learn to expect uh, attention to our creative endeavors. We can learn to expect, for example, our needs to be met when we're feeling sad, but other times when we're feeling angry, perhaps not. We develop a set of positive and negative expectations based on the times our parents stopped, listened, and without engulfing controlling behaviors, just created a safe container for us to express our emotional states. I'll give you an example. A child early on in life with overly punishing parents might learn the magical way to deal with situations where it's made a mistake is to lie. No child grows up with any inner moral system other than some very basic desires not to see other people harmed. But if children are overly punished by their parents when they make mistakes, one of the first coping strategies they'll learn is to deny culpability when they've made any error in judgment or they've knocked over the cookie jar or they've, you know, hit their brother or their sister or whatever. So they will lie to get out of an interpersonal situation that they found leads to rejection, punishment, uh, you know, some form of dysfunction in their relationship. Lying, for example, is completely a wonderful coping strategy for a child. The problem is that it becomes what's called maladaptive in adult life. If the only way we know in adult life to deal with times when we've made an error in judgment, we've snapped, we didn't call someone when we said we would, we've uh, made some kind of error in judgment, if the only way we know how to cope is by lying as an adult, then what will happen is our relationships will begin to dwindle and other people will find us untrustworthy. So the strategies that help us survive our family systems are coping strategies, but very often if we import them wholesale into our adult life, they become maladaptive. So very often, while we learn a host of strategies to survive in relationships in childhood that are very adaptive through the entirety of our lives, we might learn in our family systems that when we're not feeling well, to speak up and to demand attention, and that would be a healthy coping strategy. On the other hand, if we grow up in a family when we are sick or emotionally upset and we're told this is not a family where sadness or frustration is well tolerated, we might learn then that when we are activated to clam up and to just deal with it ourselves because if we, if we state our needs, will be disappointed. So these coping strategies start out consciously because we're in our early lives, we interact with people largely through the right hemisphere of the brain. Then what happens is over time and we become increasingly more language-based and consciousness moves to the left hemisphere and a lot of the coping strategies that were once conscious 
and easily what's called neuroplastic. We could change them easily depending upon the situation. Uh, as we grow up, those coping strategies become locked in the right hemisphere, which is a very, increasingly as we go on through life, less neuroplastic, less accessible from the, by the language-bearing mind. And so what winds up happening is we have two completely different personalities. The logical, success-driven, plan, goal-oriented, left-hemispheric side. And then we have the emotional circuits which are set to survive and get our needs met in relationship and speak to us through emotions, not through, not often through thoughts. And they create anxiety or they create shutdown. They create times when we want to be confident and be able to speak and be spontaneous, but we find ourselves shut off and guarded. We can have times when we want to be caring and empathetic, but we find ourselves cold and cut off. There can be times in life where we want to be uh, witty, and yet there's not a funny thing going through our mind. We can want to be attentive, and yet the emotional mind can pull us away again and again and again, because it's actually the right cingulate is much stronger, and that go governs where our attention is. So these coping strategies are stored in areas of the brain that are very difficult to change the older we get. It's not saying they're impossible, but they're written in early experience, and the only way they can be changed is by experience that shows your emotional brain that things have changed. You cannot read a book about coping and relating with other people in a different way. You cannot think or tell yourself, oh, today I'm going to be funny on a date, or today in a job interview I'm going to be witty and spontaneous, and this will be the time that I don't get nervous and shut down. It won't work because the experience of early on in life when you felt evaluated and you trained yourself that the safest way when you felt evaluated was to clam up and speak as little as possible and to guard your every utterance. If you've been trained, then you will revert to that until you are in enough situations that teach you otherwise. You have to experience security before you will ever act secure. The right hemisphere is the experiential learner. Implicit knowledge is experiential. It's not theoretical. I can tell you a fact that's very dry and you will get that fact and you might even be able to recite it five weeks later. I might be able to tell you, for example, um, that the Kinks were a very good band. <laughs> they were. I like the Kinks. And you would be able a few weeks from now to say, oh, that weird Buddhist guy he liked the kinks. That's, that's explicit knowledge. It's stored in a way that you can voluntarily recall it and bring it up and talk about it. Not very interesting, but you could if you wanted to. But implicit knowledge you cannot voluntarily recall. It's activated in situations where you, that are similar to the original situations where you were trained 
to act that behavior. So, for instance, if early on in life you found that uh, whenever you were creative, one of your parents was very supportive, you will then, when you have done something creative, you will feel empowered to tell everybody about it. And that's okay. On the other hand, you might have grown up in a family situation where whenever you were, uh, you sang spontaneously, your parents asked you what was the matter and or made fun of your voice or made you feel odd for singing, and then you will not feel the impulse to join along with your friends when they sing aloud. You will have been trained in that earlier situation that's reminiscent of the adult situation. Whenever you go into an adult situation that reminds you of an emotionally vulnerable time for your childhood, you will find yourself reverting back to the coping strategy that you developed to survive in your families. Are you following me so far? Is this? Okay. So, um, they become essentially compulsions. We start to feel a level of obsessive anxiety that arises in social situations in our life. And to alleviate the anxiety, we fall back into the maladaptive coping. We might become caretakers when we're in any situation with somebody new that we don't know that well, we might find ourselves being the person who's empathetic and compassionate but never talking about our own needs. Or we might fall into a strategy of trying to immediately escape intimacy. Or on the other hand, we might in relationships always expect to be abandoned and disappointed. And so as we move into new relationships, we will be activated to... Uh, become suspicious, preoccupied, and trying to figure out where the abandonment will happen. Again, falling into a coping strategy that helped us in our childhood, but now in our adult life makes us, at times, uh, we might become very, very uh, challenging for others if we don't recognize these maladaptive coping strategies and be able to talk about them rather than just simply act them out. So there are a number of ways to go about changing maladaptive coping strategies. The most familiar in therapeutic environments is what's known as exposure therapy. And the idea is if you keep on pushing yourself to go into something that's triggering for you, eventually you're your uh, compulsive desire to escape will eventually be rewritten. Um, exposure therapy might be somebody like myself. I always like using myself as an example. It <laughs> makes me sound like I'm... I may, it, it sort of owns the fact that I have my issues too. I hated when I used to go to Buddhist events and the teacher <coughs> came across all tranquiler than thou. <laughs> you know, like those yoga teachers, oh, it's so great to be here. It's so lovely now going to Sabasa. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, that's, I love yoga. I don't want to. <laughs> but, so, uh, I, my dad was a real macho guy, and he never learned to. He did a lot of things really abruptly, and one of the things he would do was he couldn't 
he couldn't stand any kind of like uh, weakness or temerity in men. So when I was very young and he took me to the beach, he grabbed me and pulled me into the ocean and put me on his shoulders and swam around when I was like two or three. And thanks to good old dad, I wound up with a terrifying fear of water and never learned to swim for a long time. And the only way I could learn to swim was by, at a really adult age, getting into the you know, the shallow end and wading around with the infants <laughs> and moving forward and, you know, slowly over time overcoming the shame and, you know, just pushing myself and pushing myself and now I can swim terribly. Um, but I can. The problem with exposure therapy is that it risks re-traumatization. If I'd gone too quickly into the deep end or if I had had another experience where I felt pushed by other adults, I might have re-traumatized myself and just stayed away from water the rest of my life. So exposure therapy has a lot of risks. Generally, to do exposure therapy, the best way to do it is to practice with compassionate friends. So if you are somebody that in any evaluating situation, you have a tendency to shut down because you experienced um, when you were interrogated by your parents is extremely painful and it was best not to acknowledge or talk. And then you have a job interview in life. You might practice with friends who are compassionate, practice talking about yourself. And that exposure to talking about yourself would hopefully make it possible for you to then go into the triggering situation with less desire to shut down because you would have trained yourself that it's okay to speak about yourself without being judged or abandoned. Exposure therapy takes a long time to work and uh, in a lot of cases it leads people to give up because they find it so terrifying going into the realm of triggering that there's a tendency to just avoid triggering situations altogether rather than push themselves through. But if you are going to try exposure therapy, for instance, suppose you're somebody who was trained in early life not to expect very much in relationship with the parent of the opposite sex. And if you're heteronormative and you're in a relationship with somebody of the opposite sex, you might find yourself either being avoidant or anxious. The way you would do exposure therapy is first practice either with a therapist or with someone that was um, compassionate and you could be very clear about, hey, I want to practice being open about my needs and practice expressing what my needs are. And you would do that and then you'd go into the, the demon's mouth and in a relationship actually say, hey, to feel safe in this relationship, I can't have you calling me every 15 minutes. Um, or I need you to, I need to connect with you, you know, every other day, whatever your needs would be. There's no wrong needs. Um, so the second is um, uh, creating a safe container to deactivate the emotions. So instead of going into the trigger immediately, you would, in fact, investigate what the underlying feelings are whenever you feel the compulsion to act out a, uh, 
a habit, a routine, a compulsion, and see what you're feeling and learn to be with that feeling rather than uh, push, get rid of the compulsion like an exposure by just going towards the trigger. Let me give you some specific examples and I think it'll clarify how different this is from exposure therapy. Suppose um, somebody every day before uh, they went to work had to have a donut because they didn't like their job and they felt, you know, unrewarded and, or they just created the need every day to have a donut to give themselves the neural boost to go into work. Exposure therapy would just have them walk past the donut shop and just go to work and just be with and push themselves to be with the sensations that are triggering them. But if you were going to do creating a safe container, what you would do is literally when you felt the compulsion to eat the donut, pay attention to what's going on internally, to the feelings of anxiety or fear or anxiousness or unfulfillment, and then begin to slowly, using the breath, relaxing the body, address the underlying emotions that arise when you feel that compulsion. So, for instance, somebody in a relationship who might feel a desire to run when, they're, when there's a time to be intimate and talk about their needs, uh, they could either push themselves through exposure therapy to go into that experience, or they could first, in their meditation instead, hold an image about what it would be like to express my needs vulnerably, and then feel the anxiety in the body, and then be with that anxiety and then slowly um, adjust it by breathing into the areas that are tight, relaxing the stomach, relaxing, relaxing the chest, making a very calm breath. So, for example, somebody who binge eats every night when they're home alone, binge eating is a very common phenomenon where people feel lonely they binge eat because it creates the feeling that there's somebody there taking care of them, meeting their needs. So people, when they feel lonely, they turn to the Oreos or to the Doritos or whatever. Um, instead, when they feel that compulsion to, for me, it's, I have to, oh, I, I need to put myself on the line and acknowledge my own compulsions. Whenever I feel exhausted and kind of, uh, spent, rather than sometimes taking care of those feelings, I feel the need for some reason to always look at the iPad Pro 9.7 with the keyboard. I do not need it. I have a laptop. But I've, my emotional mind knows that when I start to feel that tiredness and that, that kind of crankiness at the end of the day, how much better it is to look at the iPad Pro and all the shiny, wonderful things that it would bring to my life that it really wouldn't, but that's what the... I've trained myself, rather than feel the tiredness and the, the exhaustion or whatever is there, the, whatever I'm feeling, the loneliness, instead of feeling that, I go. there's this desire to go to the, look at an iPad, right? So what I do is I said, I say, okay... I'll look at you in five minutes, but I'm going to spend five minutes just being with whatever feeling is activating the compulsion. The more I can be with whatever activating the compulsion, the less strong the compulsion is. 
So whatever maladaptive coping strategy I have in my life, if I can be with the underlying anxiety that's always activating maladaptive coping strategies, if I can be with that anxiety that I won't get my needs met, that I'll be rejected again, that I won't be taken care of, then I won't need to act out that, that coping strategy. So that's the second tool. And finally, the last tool is what the Buddha called Yoniso Manasikara. That previous tool, simply being with the underlying state, is basic insight practice. Um, Yoniso Manasikara, the Buddha said that whenever there's a ritual or habit in our life or a thing that we do automatically, it's because there's an underlying allure that we're unaware of. It's actually giving us something that we're not aware of. So, for example, worry. People don't like to worry, but they do it all the time. And they, we worry because it makes us feel prepared, that we won't be caught off guard. If I worry about all the bad things that uh, could happen, and believe me, I was brought up by a Jewish mother who grew up in the shadow of the Holocaust, so... She never failed to tell me how everything could possibly that could possibly go wrong in life. So I have that ability to worry. Uh, so um, so worry makes us feel prepared. If I simply view worry as the enemy and try to get rid of it, it won't go away because I haven't seen the underlying allure, what the Buddha called uh, asada, the underlying secret allure of all of our coping mechanisms. Here's an example I was just talking with somebody about. Procrastination. People, whatever we need to do something that would be an advancement to our career or to our life or to our art, we might find ourselves procrastinating, not doing it. And we think, oh, what's wrong with me? Procrastination is terrible. It's not. Procrastination is simply a way to keep ourselves from the vulnerability of taking risks in our lives. See emotional mind avoiding doing something because it knows that there's a risk. Once we realize this with Yonisa Manasikara, what we can do is when we understand the emotional need that our behaviors are meeting, what we can do is instead speak to that need like an inner child almost and assure it and show it, not tell it, but show it information that will make it feel safer. So, for example, if we procrastinate because we've got something that we need to do but we're emotionally scared of taking the risk, the person who's scared of finally doing the last thing they need to do before... Um, traveling, switching a career, taking an artistic endeavor in their life, they might simply speak to that part of themselves, hold the image of, of, of finally filling out the form, entering the contest, quitting the job, feeling the fear, that the anxiety that comes up, and then speak to it and say, I know that you want me to stall. I know that you don't want me to... to finish this up. I know that you don't want me to proceed any further. I know that you want me to look at Amazon right now because that's safer. I know that you want me to. But instead 
I'm going to show you all the times in my life where I've taken risks and I didn't wind up rejected. I didn't wind up being, you know, dropped by the world. In fact, I got my needs met. So with that part activated, with those neurons activated, we show the mind, we reflect on all the times in our life we've done something scary and instead of falling apart, our needs got met. For example, the time we moved across country, the time we went to school and didn't know anybody and still made friends, the times that we did quit a job and we found another job. So we show the emotional mind all the times where the thing it fears the most didn't happen. You're speaking and you're reassuring that inner coping strategy that believes any time in life we take a risk, we won't be taken care of. And you show it, that's not true. Not telling it, but showing it through long, sustained reflections. And what Joseph Ledoux, the great neuroscientist, has found is that when neurons are the most activated, that's when they're the most neuroplastic. So even though a lot of these coping strategies are buried deep in the right hemisphere, in the orbital frontal, and other neural regions that are difficult to reach, if you show these emotional circuits when they're totally activated and pushing you to act out a coping strategy like procrastinate, stall, run away, or become uh, preoccupied or anxious, instead you speak to it and you show it all the times your needs have been met, then those circuits can become amenable and can learn and will no longer be trapped in the way life was when we were four, and they might now be uh, applicable to the way life is when we're 34 or 44, or in my case, 55. <laughs>